Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, grace and peace to you. Uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about community. Now, why community? Because we're going to launch something called community groups in a couple of weeks. Now, I'm not going to preach about community groups. I don't want to be a greasy used car salesman. Instead, a few of you laughed, all right. Uh, instead, I want to teach on the New Testament understanding of community, what it is and why it matters. Now, our community groups are going to be the primary place where we put the scriptural teaching on community into practice. But it's our hope that it's the scriptural vision that moves you and leads you to participate more than anything else. So with that, uh, the, the plan this morning is really simple. I want to teach on community. And then after service, I'll give you guys a quick explanation of our plan for community groups and what to expect. So with that, let's actually begin. It's no secret that we are living through the hollowing out of community in our society. There are thousands of contributing factors to why this is happening, mainly the digital revolution but the simple fact is, Americans are more lonely and isolated than ever. One study published that the average American has only 1.2 close friends, down from the recent past where that number sat around 3.8 people. And more recent data shows that one in five millennials, so anyone my generation and younger, one in five millennials has no friends at all. And social scientists call this the atomization of culture. That is, these larger units that used to give meaning to life, religion, institutions, family, etc., are broken down. That is, they're atomized into smaller subcomponents till the individual is all that is left standing. So a person, in one sense, is given freedom. You can do whatever you want to do, but not belonging. They're given independence, be free, but not solidarity. And they're given online community, but not flesh and blood community. And of course, this trend in our society, which was only um, exasperated by the pandemic, this leads to all manner of societal and individual problems. On an individual level, loneliness is linked to rising suicide rates, obviously, mass shootings. It's linked to poor mental health and even things like heart disease and strokes. In his book, Lost Connections, jo Johan Hari writes, Protracted loneliness causes you to shut down socially and to be more suspicious of any social contact. You become hypervigilant you start to be more like, likely to take offense where none was intended and to be afraid of strangers. You start to be afraid, he says, of the very thing you need most. And that sounds like a good description of American society. right? It's not surprising that the atomization of culture, the breakdown of, of, of these larger units of society, um, that the atomization of culture leads to the splintering of culture which then leads to polarization and all these other things that are happening in our culture. Now, there's more to say. There's more to say, but the point is, where I'm trying to get, is that it's obvious that human beings 
cannot live this way. That the way we live in our culture is not the way it was intended. As the church, we believe that humanity was created in the image of the triune God, who is relational in his very being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's our purpose, as those created in his image, to mirror him in our relationships. From the beginning, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And from one came two. And from two, the human race was to grow in number and diversity. The simple fact is that human beings are social creatures. It's not good that we live the isolated modern life. And it's especially not good for those who belong to the church. Jesus calls us to be his disciples, not individually, but in community. He calls each one of the twelve to be a part of this larger unit. He formed, he, from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus was intent on forming a community around himself. He called them his disciples, he called them his family, and later he called them his church. In other words, what we're saying is this, and that is rich community is intrinsic to the faith, and it's inseparable from what it means to follow Jesus, right? A lone disciple is a contradiction in terms. It's an impossibility. Jesus calls us to follow him in community. And so though our culture may atomize and break down to where all the individual is all that left, that's can, that can never be the case for the church, right? It's irreducibly communal, irreducibly social. And why is community so baked into the fabric of the church? Well, again, because salvation is communal in nature. God restores in Jesus Christ his original purpose and plan for creation. The church is supposed to be the place where God's original intention is somewhat realized before the kingdom comes. God's plan from the beginning has always been, as James says, to create a people for his name. Acts 15, 14. God's plan has always been to create a people for his name. Salvation is not a lone individual practicing his private devotions. It's a people worshiping together, serving one another, striving together for the faith of the gospel, laughing and mourning, feasting and fasting as one. That's God's purpose. So in contrast to our society, the church has the resources, namely the Spirit of God, and the opportunity to be something quite different to what we see around us. That is, a people of loving relationships in a culture of individualism. A people of honor in a culture of contempt. A people of holiness in a culture of moral relativism. And a people of peace in a culture of outrage. So, we can sum up the scriptural teaching on community by zeroing in on one phrase that appears twice in our passage from this morning, and that is building up. Building up. It comes, in verse, it comes up first in verse 12, where 
the apostle speaks about the building up of the body of Christ, and then it comes up again in verse 16, where it says the building up of itself in love. Now, in the Greek, it's one word. It's a koidome, and it, it's an architectural term. It's used to describe the construction of a building or a temple. And the way it's being used in our passage is obviously in a metaphorical sense. It's supposed to create a picture in our mind. It betrays the church, a very real flesh and blood community, as a temple that's being built up, stone upon stone, till at last it's finally constructed and it reaches the full stature of Christ. So in his first letter to the Corinthians, uh, Greg, if you'd change the slide, please, Paul paints the picture this way. 1 Corinthians 3.10, he says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, he says, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds. So here the Apostle Paul is referring to the church. And he compares his apostolic work to a construction project. He is, in the Greek, an architecton, a master builder who has laid the foundation, which is none other than Jesus Christ the Lord, and he is building, it's the same word uh, that we, akoidome, that we mentioned early, and he's building upon it. So all his ministry, preaching the gospel, planting churches, instructing those believers in the faith, is summed up in that one phrase, building up. Another time, the Apostle Paul has to deal sternly with the Corinthian church. Uh, next slide, slide, please. And he says to them, 2 Corinthians 13.10, For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me, he says, for building up, not for tearing down. So even when the Apostle Paul has to use stern words to correct his erring church. He says, even then, it's always for building up, and it's not for tearing down. As an apostle, Paul is a master workman, a master builder, who does everything he can to see his workmanship, that is the church, completed. In other words, his focus is not on mere individuals, but founding and strengthening communities. Again, God's purpose has always been, Titus 2.14, to create a people for his own possession. But this necessity to build up, right, is not merely placed on the apostles or even simply the leaders of the church, but upon everyone. Writing to the Thessalonians, Paul instructs them and us to remind one another of the gospel in order, he says, to encourage one another and build up one another. He tells us that prophecy is to be preferred over tongues. He says, because the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the entire church. 1 Corinthians 14.4. And again, he tells us that we are to pursue love rather than merely knowledge because love actually builds up and knowledge, he says, only puffs up, 1 Corinthians 8.1. And again, to the church at Rome, there was a conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians about which foods 
could and could not be eaten. Obviously, the Jewish Christians still wanted to observe some of their former customs in Judaism under the law, and Gentile Christians were free from those, and so it created conflict. And Paul writes to remedy the situation. He gives them practical instruction, and then he sums up his instruction this way. Next slide, please. Romans 14, verses 19 through 20. It says, So then, we pursue the things which make for peace, and, listen, the building up of one another. And then he says, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. So here the Apostle Paul draws a sharp line between our conduct, and it can fall on one side or the other. It can build up, or it can tear down. It can aid the work of God in the life of our brothers and sisters, or it can hinder it. Again, as he says in 1 Corinthians, let all things be done for edification, for building up. Now, another way to put this matter is by calling it the common good. So what we've said so far, just by way of summary before we make a slight transition here, we all have the responsibility to build up the church, not just for the apostles, but every one of us. And another way to describe this building up is to call it the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, uh, next slide, there we go. It says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, listen, for the common good. Building up and contributing to the common good in the church are the same thing. In other words, the church is a genuine community when its members are not merely looking out for themselves and their own interests, but are contributing to the common good, to the building up of the entire church. As we noted, this was the end to which the apostle was constantly directing his churches. Why was there conflict in Corinth or in Rome? Why was there division? Why was there neglect among these churches? Simply because, the apostle says, they were not pursuing the things that make for peace and for the building up of one another. Genuine community, which is something greater than the mere individual, Genuine community is not possible under such conditions. So the point is, in the Scriptures, community right, is not simply uh, people whose company we enjoy, right, where we can have a good time. It's not simply a group of people that we do things with. It's a people, rather, the people of God who are united around the common good, the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, the beginning of community is not to seek community, but to seek the good of our brothers and sisters. It does not start with the concern for my needs, genuine though those are, but it starts with the good of the church and wanting to contribute to that. So community is simply building up one another. It's contributing to the common good. And the rule of ministry in the church is simply this. Do everything you do to build up the body of Christ. Let all things be done for edification. For edification. So, now turning a little bit more directly to our passage, what it says is quite remarkable. 
And it says that the body, that's us, the church, it says that the body builds itself. Our passage opens with Jesus' ascension into heaven, quoted in Psalm 68, which reads, um, next slide please, uh, Ephesians 4.8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, Psalm 68 is a poem of triumphal procession. More than likely, um, the historical context is when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem for the first time. So it's a poem, a, a, a psalm depicting the victory of God and the beauty of this procession through Jerusalem. And that psalm read in the context of the gospel, as the Apostle Paul is doing here, it refers to Jesus' victory over the kingdom of darkness. And it envisions him ascending into heaven with the spoils of war behind him. Again, he led captive a host of captives. And from these spoils, he distributes gifts to his people. He gave gifts to men. Now, what is the purpose of these gifts? Uh, Moving forward just a few verses to verse 11. Next slide, please. And it says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, listen, to the building up of the body of Christ. So Jesus ascends, and from his the spoils of war, namely the gift of the Spirit, he gives gifts to us. And the ultimate end of these gifts is the building up of the church. And our focus, again, here is not so much on the gifts, but that they are given to human beings, that these gifts are given to each member of the body. And so the truly remarkable thing here is that Jesus equips human beings to build his own body. Again, the point is, the body builds itself. The church builds itself. Now, of course, Jesus is the true builder. He's the head from which all the power comes. He says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, but he doesn't build directly. Rather, we are the hands and the tools by which he builds his own body, by which he constructs his own church. Each one of us has received his or her share of the spoils. And therefore, each one of us, no matter how insignificant we may think we are, each one of us has something to contribute to the build. So stop for a moment and just let that sink in. Christ has left the building of his own body in our hands, in your hands, meaning The building up of the church is not the work of one man, the pastor, nor the work of a few, the elders. It's the work of all for all. In fact, the common good, which I mentioned earlier, simply means carrying together. The common good means carrying together. It's a task, the common good, too great for one individual. It outruns our abilities and gifts of just the few. It's a burden, the building up of the church that can only be carried out together. In the body, we are told there are many members, 
But no one member, no matter how important, is not identical to the body. It may have an outsized role, but it remains dependent upon the other members of the body. In the church, there are master builders like the Apostle Paul. And then there are drones placed over more mundane tasks, but every member has a role to play in the self-constructing body. In the body that is the church, there are no, no vestigial organs. Those organs that we might think to seem have no purpose. Each member of the body performs its unique work for the other members of the body. Hands don't work for themselves. They lend their manual power to the rest of the body. Ears do not hear for themselves, and eyes do not see for themselves. Each member exists to build up the whole, to contribute to the proper functioning of the entire body. Now, what does this look like when it's actually put into practice? I'd simply point you to the one another commands in Scripture. Be devoted to one another, Romans 12.10. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12, 16. Accept one another, Romans 15, 7. Have the same care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Through love, serve one another, Galatians 5, 13. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. Be kind to one another, Ephesians 4, 32. Be subject to one another, Ephesians 5, 21. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, James 5, 13. Be hospitable to one another, 1 Peter 4.9. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another, 1 Peter 5.5. And on and on the list could go. Here is the vision of church that we are called to. Not mere individuals who show up for an event, but a community. A people who love one another from the heart. So, you and I are a part of the self-constructing body. The body that is given power by its head to build itself up. And the question is, how does the body build itself up? In other words, what are the tools of the trade? What are the means by which the body is actually constructed? Now, when the members of the body are working toward the same end, again, here's the question, when they're building up the body, what are they doing? So I'd like to turn, obviously, to the early church as our example. When we consider the early church, there are four practices or customs that stand out. So the Holy Spirit descends, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. The disciples burst out of the upper room, speaking in the tongues of all the nations, And Peter preaches the resurrection for the first time. And about 3,000 people are converted. They believe and they're baptized. And the scripture says, Acts 2.42, next slide please. It says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So the customs of the church are, one, devotion to the apostles' teaching, two, to fellowship, three, the breaking of bread, and four, prayer. In other words, these are the markers that distinguish the church from other people. These are the tools that we have been given by Christ to build up the body. So if the church is a temple and we are the builders, 
then these practices, these four things, are the tools of the trade. This is how the body is built up. And they seem so simple, right? So mundane. And if we're looking from the flesh, we might even be tempted to despise them, but they are spiritual tools, mighty in the spiritual realm. Anyway, in Acts, as the gospel spreads through Jerusalem and then out to Judea and then into the surrounding Gentile territories, everyone recognizes this new people as a people with her own customs. That is, her own way of doing things, her own way of living in the world. In one instance, the Jewish people, they accused the church and its teachers of destroying the customs that Moses handed down to us. That's Acts chapter 6, verse 21. They're offended because this new people is living in a new way that's not in accordance with the old way. And again, Paul is branded in another place, Acts 21, 21, as someone who is telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. This new people is disrupting the old system. And it's not only the Jewish people who recognize the church as a people with their own customs. The Romans get it as well. In Philippi, which was a colony of Rome, Paul and Silas were apprehended, and they were brought before the civil magistrates. And the accusation is this. Next slide. It's Acts 16, chapter 20. Or chapter 16, verses 20 and 21, it says, These men are throwing our city into confusion and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. So these men rightly understood that the church and her customs, her way of life, threatened the Roman way of life. They said, if we join the church and live according to what they say, that's not lawful and that's not okay for us as Romans. So my point here is is just rather simple. It's that these customs, the four things I mentioned, define us as a people. These are the distinctive practices that Jesus has given us to build his body. In fact, they are his tools. These are the means by which he accomplished his own work. Anyway, let's take each one of them in turn, moving on. at a quicker pace here. It says the first, pra- the first practice or custom that's given to build the body is the apostles' teaching. Now, why this practice? Because in the words of one theologian, he says, one is not born into the world with the knowledge necessary to be Christian. It is something that has to be learned. And this means, of course, that someone has to teach it. We have to learn to be Christians. We have to learn what it means to follow Jesus Christ. In other words, the church is built up by learning more and more the meaning of the gospel story. It's clear the apostles were not merely giving moral instruction. They were not simply saying, do this and don't do that. Instead, they were helping the church to better understand the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and how it changes their lives, and therefore how they are supposed to live because of this. They were not simply reissuing commands. The pattern that we see is this. Jesus did this. Jesus said this. Jesus accomplished this. Therefore, here is how you were supposed to live. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the explication of the gospel, and then what it meant for them. The second custom is fellowship, koinonia in the Greek. 
Now, in the modern usage, fellowship has become a word that means something like hanging out or having a good time. In reality, it's much deeper than that. Koinonia is originally a civic or political term. It derives from the word koinon, that is common, and it refers to all things that the citizens share within the city. Now, this is kind of hard for us to understand in our industrialized and commercialized society, but in the not-too-distant past, every city was a koinonia. And that means that each trade contributed something to the greater good of the entire city. So, for instance, blacksmiths brought their goods for all the people, just as farmers did and craftsmen did and butchers and tailors and so on and so forth. They all brought what they had to the common good of the entire city or the commonwealth. And it's not like today, right, where our work is disconnected from our community, where we go and do sometimes a mindless job to get cash and to go spend it on Amazon. Back then, everybody contributed to the greater good of this little community they had. So in that sense, when the scripture says koinonia or fellowship, it depicts the church like an ancient city. And what fellowship depicts is each member contributing their goods, spiritual and indeed sometimes physical, to the common good. And each member receiving from the common good themselves. So in fellowship, each one gives and each one receives. You bring your unique contribution. I bring my unique contribution. Another brings his or hers and on and on till together the church functions in a way that would not be possible otherwise. So we have the apostles' teaching, we have fellowship, and then the third custom is the breaking of bread. And that's sharing a meal together. It's easy to overlook the importance of this custom for the life of the church, but it's very near the heart of things. In some ways, a meal is the substance of salvation. It's the thing that we're saved for. Jesus came eating and drinking, the scripture says. When he taught about the kingdom of God, he would often liken it to a banquet, a table set with food and guests all around. Revelation says that he knocks at the door, and whoever opens, he says he will come and sup with them. He will sit and have a meal with them. The church's common meals are a demonstration of the kingdom of God. They're a demonstration that salvation has come. We sit around the table through Christ, reconciled to God and to one another, sharing fellowship in the Spirit. The world mocks at something so simple, but it's one of our greatest weapons. What is the church? Who is the church? We just would simply point and say, it's the people who sit around the same table with one another in simplicity and gladness of heart, fearing nothing, hiding nothing, but sharing their lives with one another. That's the church. And our last custom here as we close is prayer. Prayer is the most perfect expression of our koinonia, our fellowship as the church. In prayer, the many voices become one, and all stand on the same level ground. God hears all his people. No voice is drowned out. And the church's prayer is also missional in nature. The body communicates its needs, and the head responds in power. And it's to him, the head, that we now turn. In many ways, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, which we're soon going to partake, is the main sign of the church. 
It's where we come to understand the meaning of God's purpose for us. In the bread and the cup, we have koinonia with the risen Christ, the Scripture says. We have a fellowship and participation with Him. And it also says that we have fellowship and participation with one another because we partake of the same loaf. So Jesus invites us to His table, the Lord's Supper, to share His presence. We were formerly aliens, we were formerly hostile, and now we've been reconciled through His body and blood. Jesus died and rose again quite simply that He might welcome us to His table, that we could have fellowship with Him and fellowship with one another. And that's the meaning of the Lord's Supper. So I'd invite you up now to come and to receive the elements, to return to your places, and to feast upon His grace, His hospitality to us, and then I will lead us in celebration in just one moment.